Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Welcome back, folks, to Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. Today I'm flying the Jupiter 2 solo without my trusty co-host, Kurt, but that's because we're welcoming back a very special guest, Mr. Jeff Bond. Jeff is an accomplished author, music critic, and album producer. He's written several books on sci-fi-related topics, including The Music of Star Trek, The Art of Star Trek, The Kelvin Timeline, The World of Orville, and The Art and Making of Narcos. Mr. Bond is originally from Ohio and graduated from Bowling Green State University with a degree in creative writing, after which he pursued a career as a movie magazine reporter. Jeff's knowledge of film and TV music scores and their creators dates back to the 1990s when he served as senior editor for Film Score Monthly. As a freelance writer, he's written articles for The Hollywood Reporter, Geek Monthly, and Cinefantastique magazine. From 2003 to 2006, Jeff served as senior editor at CFQ, the latter-day revival of Cinefantastique. In addition, he's written hundreds of movie and television soundtrack liner note booklets as an editor for GNP Crescendo Records, Varese Saraband Records, and La La Land Records. In 2012, he shared an IFMCA Award nomination for Star Trek, the original series soundtrack collection, and won the shared 2012 award for Star Trek The Motion Picture Expanded Soundtrack in the category of Best Archival Release of an Existing Score for his work as producer and liner notes author. Notably for us, Jeff, along with his colleague, Neil Bulk, was album producer on the beautiful Lost in Space 50th Anniversary Soundtrack Collection released in 2015. In addition, he recently co-produced, again with Neil Bulk, a four-disc Land of the Giants 50th Anniversary Soundtrack Collection, released in late 2018. His latest project that he teased for us last time is finally about to be released. The definitive coffee table book, more than two and a half years in the making, The Fantasy Worlds of Erwin Allen. This deluxe 600-plus page limited edition hardback is the first and only book of its kind, taking readers on a visual journey through the mind and career of legendary producer Erwin Allen. As you know, when we got together to record, Jeff was extremely generous with his time and covered a lot of material, which is why I decided to split our conversation into two special Calling Alpha Control interviews. In part one of our conversation, we spoke with Jeff about his exciting, soon-to-be-released Erwin Allen book. Can't wait for my copies to arrive. 
Now, when we spoke with Jeff almost a year ago, we focused on the music for the first season of Lost in Space. So this time, we concentrated on the second season music for the series, along with any other future projects he might be working on. So sit back and enjoy this second of two power-packed interviews with author and soundtrack producer Jeff Bond. Awesome. So let's pivot to your other area of expertise, an area that's very important to us here on this show, and that is as the producer, along with your colleague Neil Bulk, on the La La Land Records Lost in Space 50th Anniversary Soundtrack Collection. Great. And what a collection it is, folks. Uh, 12 CDs. The liner notes are awesome. The liner notes uh, are worth the price alone, but it's just great. If you love Lost in Space, you need this set because as we've talked about many times, the music is such an essential part of what makes the series so great and so memorable. And we want to talk today about the season two music from the series. But before we do that, I wanted to ask you a personal question, Jeff. I know you're a writer by training. But I also know one of your early jobs was writing for Film Score Monthly. So I got to ask, were you a soundtrack enthusiast before um, yeah. getting into this? Yeah, that's uh, I, I bought an issue of Film Score Monthly because that I had never seen a magazine about soundtracks. And I was very, very obsessed with them uh, and had been for uh, probably at least 10 or 15, at least 15 years before I started first, writing. Yeah, first soundtrack uh, you bought. Uh, well, my parents had... Uh, the Ennio Morricone, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Oh, wow. And John Barry's Born Free. They were always playing music, everything from like, you know, Simon and Garfunkel and like Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass to classical music and these soundtracks. So I remember liking those. And then just growing up as a kid, you know, watching Lost in Space or Johnny Quest or Voice of the Bottom of the Sea, Man from Uncle, all the music to those shows stood out to me right away. And I would tape, you know, the theme music for Voice of the Bottom of the Sea or whatever off the speaker from our television. And then I started buying the first soundtracks I bought were on eight track cassettes. Mm. And I think towering Inferno was one, uh, the John Barry King Kong from 1976 and jaws. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, but when I bought jaws, I had already known John Williams as Johnny Williams. Right. So I was like, oh, that's, the you know, the guy who did Lots in Space is going to do this movie about a shark, which is, you know, of course, the exact opposite of way, how people, you know, John Williams has been like probably the most famous musician in the world. Right. For decades now. And so now it's like, oh, did you know John Williams once did some, you know, <laughs> TV show about a family, yeah, you know, I, in a spaceship? Uh, most people, I don't think, really know him for that. Another thing Irwin Allen was really smart about was hiring John Williams because John Williams, he was doing some movies back then, but, you know, in the 60s, a lot of composers would work between movies and television. Television. But John Williams didn't really hit it big, you know, until about 1970 as a film composer. He was doing mostly comedies, like Gidget comedies in the 60s. So, that, you know, his most interesting work in the 60s, I think, was for the Irwin Allen shows. He really was able to tackle, you know, kind of scope and power in those shows that he was really not able to do in most of the movies that he worked on. 
And I think Alan knew that, you know, he hired him on Lost in Space. His first TV show was Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. And uh, the second year of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Alan hired Jerry Goldsmith, I think because of um, The Man from Uncle, which is another story. I think that Alan was looking for people who would bring a movie sensibility to his TV shows. Right. And so in 65, you know, he hired John Williams for Lost in Space and Jerry Goldsmith for Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. And the the Jerry Goldsmith thing sort of worked out a different way because they didn't really ever wind up liking the theme music that Goldsmith wrote for that show. But, you know, the music Williams wrote for Lost in Space was the core kind of ground zero for all the music on that show because they kept tracking. Exactly. He he wrote music for four episodes, I think, and then they would track his music throughout the rest of the series. And then um, same thing, you know, for Time Tunnel and Land of the Giants, it was the same thing. Well, it's kind of interesting that you know, Alan, and maybe this was something that was common back in 60s TV, but so he has John Williams score for season one for the theme. And of course, like you say, his fingerprints are all over season one. I, I think he scored like four of the six episodes yeah. he ended up doing scores for. So season two of Lost in Space starts out. And I didn't know this until I read your liner notes. I knew that Alan had commissioned another title music theme, but it wasn't even done until after season two had already started. What's the story? Yeah, that? that I don't know how much I can really explain about that, except that it was not uncommon and for Alan to fiddle around with the main titles of his show. And this actually also happened on Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. They had Jerry Goldsmith write a main title for this second season episode, uh, Jonah and the Whale. Then they basically threw it out after one episode. They did. They kept the end title in the next episode, but they used the original Paul Sawtell music. And it, they actually had Jerry Goldsmith write a completely different end title, which is a, another story. And that was never used. But Voice of Bottom of the Sea, they introduced the flying sub. And eventually that sort of became kind of like a popular character on its own. And Mm -hmm. so if you watch the second season main title for Voyage of the Bottom of the Sea, at the end, for the first handful of episodes, you just see the last shot under Irwin Allen's producer title is just a shot of the sea view. You know, you're looking up at it as it's kind Mm -hmm. of resting on the ocean surface. And then after a few episodes, the last image you see is the flying sub going past. And it's almost like, you know, the, the, mm. the, it's like starring, you know, Richard Basehart, David Hedison and the flying sub. It's like <laughs> they could have actually almost added that because, yeah. uh, you know, they were very hot to promote that as a, an element of the show. Alan was tinkering with things like this all the time. And I I do not know what the reason was for hiring uh, this guy who had done the theme music to Bewitched. Um, Warren Barker? Yeah, Warren Barker. It's a just bizarre end title, although it does fit 
<laughs> the the beats of the animation for the Lost in Space title sequence. But but I'll tell you one thing that did become a pretty obvious factor is that the show had mutated into a comedy by the time the second season started. And I think there's a lot of kind of debate about <laughs> when this actually started, because most people assume that the whole first season of Lost in Space is like very, you know, dead serious. And it's just like the outer limits with the space family because all black and white and, and grim and scary. And a lot of it was and definitely more of it was than in the second season. But they had already started, you know, after they got through all the kind of pilot footage I think the maybe the fifth episode is uh, Welcome Hello, Stranger. Welcome Stranger with the Space yep. Cowboy. Right. And then they had, you know, Space Hillbillies, Space Pirates. Mm -hmm. And that became the theme, you know, for the second season of the show. And in particular, because of uh, Jonathan Harris kind of starting to change his character from being this menacing guy to a, a comedic character. There were still quite a few serious episodes in the, in the first season of the show. But by the second season, I think they had more or less made the decision that this was going to be a show about the wacky adventures of right. Dr. Smith and the robot and Will. And it was going to be in color and they were going to focus on, you know, guest stars playing these bizarre characters. So I think that the you know this Warren Barker music was sort of an attempt to address that, but I think the problem was that John Williams already had really laid the groundwork for that with his original Lost in Space theme, and there was something that was kind of jolly and fun about that theme. Yeah. It, it played against the idea that this was a scary show about a family trapped in outer space. And it told you that there was going to be a lot of fun exactly. uh, involved in that. So you didn't really, and it also still managed to get the adventure element across, which the Warren Barker music just completely missed. Damn no, I, I'm glad it's on the collection, obviously. Um, it's it's a curiosity. It is a curiosity. You know, to me, it sounds more like the theme that you'd see at the beginning of a, like a Bullwinkle cartoon. Yeah, or a, it's crazy. It, it's like, the, yeah. and it, he had done, um, e, and even Bewitched, I think, has, you know, kind of more of a... It's whimsical, it's, but it's not it's, silly. Yeah, it has an impressive sound and kind of creates like this atmosphere. It's like, oh, this is a world where witches, you know, exist. Uh, it, there, there's a little element of fantasy in that that's not in the his Lost in Space theme at all. So it was a, it was a real misfire. But it does show you that Alan was really influenced by other hit shows. And I think that he often would look for talent and try to, uh, you know, build on the success of other shows that he saw going around. That's what happened, I think, on Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, because when I was working on the book, I found a lot of memos 
and they were constantly trying to figure out how to kind of get the ratings up on Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. It had strong ratings, but they felt that they could do better. And one of the big issues for them the first year was that they were up against The Man from Uncle. Mm-hmm. And that The Man from Uncle was a huge hit show that was like the Beatles, uh, you know, and there was this huge spy craze going on at the time. So the second season, uh, they they had actually discussed like well maybe we should get some of the writers from the man from uncle which i don't think they really did do uh, although a lot of the first season episodes of voice to the bottom of the sea you know involve like south american dictators and and right. uh, things you would see on the man from uncle or mission impossible and then the, so the second season though they really got fixated on this idea that this spy craze is everything and so to an almost ridiculous extent in the first handful of second season episodes of Voyage of the Bottom of the Sea they, it's just a rip off of Man from Uncle and James Bond and they, you know they have a guy who's like Q who comes in and gives mm. like Admiral Nelson you know pens with bombs and lasers in them and uh, trick wrist watches and you know they're always meeting some hot babe in venice or some exotic locale so they they hired jerry goldsmith because he did the theme to the man from uncle he was also under contract at fox and they were familiar with him because he had done in like flint Derek flint movies they hired him because he was kind of the it composer at the time. Right. Um, they wound up retaining like a lot of his music from the underscore and, and they had actually composers write their music based around the theme that Goldsmith wrote for the show, but they never wound up using his music as a main title after that first episode. So, so Alan was always tinkering with, and, with his credit sequence, you know, he, he changed the credit sequence the second year on Land of the Giants, and that's a different theme. The third season for Lost in Space. Uh, right, right. So it's, it's kind of something that he did on his TV shows. Again, forward thinking and always playing around with it, keeping it relevant. What I like about season two, Lost in Space music versus season one, is they've brought in a larger mix of composers. Season one was pretty much dominated by John Williams and then to a lesser extent, Herman Stein music, both yeah. great. And very much, it seems to me, kind of in a classical style. Season two, they really got playful just like the show did. They brought in quite a few different composers, and they actually scored more episodes, almost double the episodes that they did in season one. I don't know if they had more money or if that was just because they knew they were going to have some wackier themes and they needed music that could match yeah, those. I, I think that they had, you know, the, the, the show episodes were always built around, you know, these guest stars and whatever weird character they were playing. So the music couldn't be recycled quite as much. It's funny that they were able to stick with the John Williams stuff uh, that would still come in quite a bit. Right. Uh, but not much of the rest of the first season music would get recycled other than like the Herman Stein kind of Dr. Smith theme. But, the, you know, for the first episode, they use Leith Stevens, uh, who had done War of the Worlds. And when worlds collide, these kind of George Pal science fiction epics. <laughs> He had been hired to do scores for Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea the second year from like 65 to 66. And he did about 
four or the six episodes and he really wound up kind of creating the style for Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Uh, his music and some of Jerry Goldsmith's music was the stuff that would get tracked through most of that show. So they high, I think after, you know, he'd been very successful on Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. And so to start the second season of Lost in Space, I think Erwin Allen or Lionel Newman thought, like, you know, let's use Lee Stevens because he did such great stuff for Voice of Mile of the Sea. And he did the score, Blast Off into Outer Space, uh, with, you know, the Space Prospector played by Struther Martin and a monster. It's my second favorite music after John Williams' music and Lost in Space. I think it's like incredibly exciting score. <laughs> this fantastic earthquake cue. That's just really dynamic. He wrote a theme for, for Dr. Smith that was quite unusual. And in fact, if you listen to it, you might think it's actually the music for the Struther Martin character, but it's actually for Dr. Smith. The other one I pulled is the, um, what's the name of the element they're getting? It's like oh, Cosmonium. Cosmonium Fiend. That's the monster music. Yeah, that's something that they used in other episodes. It's really powerful and, and actually, if you're a kid, quite scary, uh, almost like medieval sounding music. Yeah. This, uh, this monster. Right. that statue that comes to life it almost looks like a mummy and i almost yeah. got an egyptian vibe off of that yeah well. yeah it's it's really it's exotic and it works perfectly for that and it the whole score is based around a theme that he wrote for the robinsons right becomes like all that action music that you hear at the end is all based on that theme but it's really cool because it's very kind of subdued but i think leith stevens he had a really distinctive kind of science fiction style and it what all a lot of it came out of his orchestration and and like, like the chords that he created have like this weird almost like a metallic 
gleaming feel to them. So even though they're not really in your face, like that theme for the family sounds futuristic, but it's there's no electronic music or anything like that. It's just purely in the harmonies, I think. And then, you know, at the end, they actually do blast off out into outer space. And there's this whole lengthy space sequence that's just more great action music. your control, I think. Right, right. Um, um, so he also wrote three library cues. They were called VS1 and 2. And I think that that meant that they were written so that they could be used on either Voice to the Bottom of the Sea or Lost in Space. But they were never used on either <laughs> show. Hmm. Uh, and the uh, VS2, I think, is this really great pulsating action cue. It sounds like Jaws when it, it first starts. And then it kind of builds up and gets into all this kind of xylophone. They never use Leith Stevens on the show after this first episode. I wonder why, yeah. Well, my theory is that his music just sounded too serious for, you know, what they were going to go for with the show. And particularly if you think about them hiring, you know, Warren Barker to do this comedy theme, I think his music worked great on Voice of the Bottom of the Sea. And, and Voyages of the Bottom of the Sea in some episodes got every bit as goofy as Lost mm-hmm. in Space. But the big difference between the shows was that the characters on Voyages of the Bottom of the Sea were basically very straight and serious. Right. Even if there was something ridiculous happening, you would not see Crane and Nelson you know, goofing around. They were always dead serious. That's something that David Hedison complained about. 
but you know lost in space became centered around the robot and dr smith who by this point were out and out comic characters so there was always going to be some kind of element of comedy in the show if you listen to uh the dr smith theme it's not funny enough and it doesn't kind of suggest how unpredictable and goofy jonathan harris was in that role and the you know these library cues there's that action cue which is like almost scary and then there's another one that just is sort of setting up an atmosphere on a planet and again it's just very straight but i think fascinating very convincing science fiction music yeah and great on probably on something like star trek in a way it was almost too sophisticated for lost in space yeah you're right the vs1 sounds very mysterious and the vs2 has this dynamic pulsing very action-packed sound to it but it's funny I was kind of looking at your liner notes, and yeah, he only did one Lost in Space, but he did nine Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea scores, two for Time Tunnel, and six for Land of Yeah, Time, they, so. uh, but that's the thing, that all those other shows were basically very straight. There's a little bit of a comedy element, you know, with Fitzhugh on Land of the Giants, but that was much more subdued. It was nothing, exactly. nothing like... Uh, Dr. Smith and, and the robot. So th- those other shows like, could be played more straight. And I think that Stevens brought like production value to those other shows. He created just this very dynamic, you know, music that reflected the special effects and the right. you know, the sets and action and grounded those and made you take all that stuff very seriously. And that's sort of not what they were going after in the second uh, year of Lost in Space. Well, I should mention briefly, I like the way that season two is organized versus season one. You kind of went in episode order. Like I said, there were six, I guess, episodes scored for season one. This one, I counted like 11 or 12, but it's more organized around the individual composers. And like we said, there's there's more composers and a familiar name pops up, Alexander Courage of Star Trek fame. I, yeah. Uh, it's funny because Lost in Space used the three main composers for Star Trek, Fred Steiner, Alexander Courage, and, and um, Gerald Free. Gerald Free did scores, uh, I think, in the third year for Lost in Space. If you listen to the Lost in Space scores, I don't think you would ever point to any of them except for the Freed ones and say, oh, that's you know that sounds like Star Trek music. Steiner and Courage both kind of adapted their style to uh, Lost in Space. Courage was, you know, he was doing Lost in Space when he was doing the first episodes of Star Trek. That's interesting, yeah. And uh, the one he was doing for Star Trek at the time was The Man Trap, which has an electric violin and it's a very kind of subdued, creepy score. It's one that Gene Roddenberry didn't like, actually. And we found a memo to that effect that he said, I don't ever want to see a score mm-hmm. done like this again for the show. So they never use like electric violin or any effects like that. But in Courage's scores, and, and I, I picked uh, these two scores that feature um, uh, Athena, the girl from the green dimension. Right. The, uh, the first one was uh, from that wi- wild uh, adventure, wild adventure, right. The floating lady. 
Yeah, yeah. So he wrote uh, the, this very kind of eerie, uh, suspended music, uh, and uh, he uses, I think he uses electric violin on the, the second score um, to get the kind of a similar effect. I, I think he just, on the first score, he just kind of creates this eerie sound with a mix of different woodwinds. It's a very but, siren song like yeah. feel to it. She's yeah, that is a a recurrent idea that I'm sure probably came out of like pulp science fiction writing from years earlier. But in the '60s, there was this whole theme of like space sirens, and you know, you had the uh, Vina, the green woman from Star Trek, the Orion mm-hmm. slave girl. Courage wrote this vocal, like, kind of siren song music for her. you know is kind of like the other famous green mm-hmm. <laughs> space and then uh, th- this is uh, sort of unrelated but you know another one of my favorite things and it's from the same year uh, 1966 is uh, this movie called Queen of Blood uh, which is a R- Roger Corman movie that incorporates a bunch of Russian space movie footage which is really great but it has basically a green female space vampire in it and it's a really creepy it's got this whole like lava lamp aesthetic mm. that's right, kind of right out of Irwin Allen in a way but it's used for horror and it's a, actually it, it's a super super cheap movie and very very cheesy in, in a lot of ways but I think it's a classic like relic of this period and there's another movie called Voyage to the Planet of Prehistoric Women. Oh yeah, which has a you know a bunch of uh, <laughs> Vegas showgirls in bikinis worshiping a you know pterodactyl statue on the Venus. And uh, is that a Roger Corman movie? Too, yeah, or? that's another Roger. I think it was directed by Peter Bogdanovich. Is maybe his first movie. Uh, I love. But Corman. so there was there was this whole theme of like these space sirens in the '60s, and you had a lot of this kind of very haunting really evocative music written for all of those characters and that that whole kind of idea well that floating lady theme is very haunting and it it's a siren song but you know what's interesting about that during that episode wild adventure there's parts of it where dr smith is actually singing to right uh, athena in that melody so it made me wonder if he came up with the melody or they (laughs) i don't think so but that that is actually interesting because that would have meant that the composer um it's possible that lionel newman came up with it uh he there's an episode of voyage to the bottom of the sea that's part of the spy craze thing i think it's escape from venice where captain crane has to memorize some dopey melody as a code word to uh and in that case, I think Lionel Newman wrote that 
uh, you know, Lionel Newman was the head of the music department at Fox, so it was his job to hire the composers. And he would also do some source music and special music for episodes if they needed some, like just some percussion effects or right. some weird thing, like uh, in, you know, the Lost in Space episode with the uh, the Scottish uh, astral mo- travel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there is a. Uh, like bagpipes or something mm-hmm. in, in that episode. So that so Lionel Newman was the guy who had to arrange for all of that unusual stuff. So I think that Courage came up with that theme. Do you remember? Is he? This is in uh, Girl from the Green Dimension, right? No, it's in. I, it's in Wild, Wild Event, or is yeah, it in Wild Adventure? Smith is enchanted, and he wakes up, and he he starts singing, "I hear you," and it's yeah, right. It's the same melody. I was thinking if it was the second one, then they would have established that at least that style of music, and could have called back to it. If that's not the case, the composer would have had to have jotted something down. And then said, "Okay, I'm, you know, because he's going to be working on the actual score sure. much later in the process. Uh, so that, yeah, that is interesting. It is, it is, it's really cool. And then when Athena comes back in, gosh, mid-season, I think it is of season two, and the girl from the green dimension, that uh, cue you told me about Telesmoke, it's the same floating lady siren song, but he really jazzed it up in that, yeah, with the electric violins, and it, it, it's even creepier than." <laughs> than the first time. love that character and i got to have dinner with um uh, marcus yeah Bettina marcus and a uh, friend of hers and and uh, mark, with mark cushman oh, cool. um, at uh, some alien con convention a few years ago and so yeah that was a really fun but yeah that uh, it's a classic 60s uh it is character you know, you could not do any of these characters today. There's just no other than in maybe an animation. You right. can, I don't think you could do a live action show yeah. and have a character like that. But it's, you know, it's one of the most memorable characters of the, of the 60s, I think. Absolutely. The green women thing was uh, running strong. Yeah. In yeah. It's a, it's a whole thing. I, I wanted to. Yeah, I've always toyed with, like, just, I want to write a book just called Green Women that I have loved. Uh, <laughs> but I can't figure out how to get a book out of it, but it's because I love well, those characters. Well, Erwin Allen must have really liked Alexander Kirsch because he went up doing, like, 15 scores between the four shows. So. <laughs> it's funny because another theory that I have is that I don't think Courage necessarily enjoyed <laughs> doing those shows. Uh, and there's a big difference between what he did for Star Trek, even between like Man Trap and the Green Girl scores. Uh, the, I think, it, uh, to me, Courage almost intentionally did very, very like kind of sluggish, slow-paced scores, and it worked in the, those two episodes with the Green Girl because those were all about atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And so he could have these very drawn out cues where really nothing is going on except for that mood. 
But some of the other episodes, scores he did, uh, some of those I just are so slow that I find him difficult to listen to. I feel like he <laughs> was sometimes just doing the bare minimum because he just could not get into some of the stories. And he, he also wasn't really... It's weird because he was very jokey in, in like his Q titles, and he had a great sense of humor, but I think for whatever reason, he was just not into the humor element of Lost in Space. So he would attack it in a very obvious way. There's some chase music and yeah. thing that that's just kind of goofy, out-and-out comedy music. He wouldn't find a way to treat it and kind of integrate it in the show. So... I talked to him and, he, you know, I did never got to talk to him much about the Irwin Allen shows, but he, I remember him saying that he and Hugo Friedhofer, you know, when they were doing Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, he said, like, we called that doing a glub glub. That was like their nickname for the show. Huh. Uh, and I, so I just got the <laughs> I just got huh. the impression neither one of them were that excited about, you know, doing the Irwin Allen shows. And I, I don't feel like Courage got... He wasn't into it. He as wasn't much. at the top. He, yeah, he wasn't. Just want to get this over with. Well, I appreciate that green the the Athena theme. Yeah, I that's, that's what I mean. I, that stuff I do. I legitimately like, and it fits in, and you know, it does really help make those episodes iconic. His other scores, I'm not sure that they quite do that. The guy that did seem to get into it was the uh, other composer you wanted to kind of profile. That was uh, Robert Drazen. He did yeah. some of the more exotic episodes in the. And his yeah, music he matches I think that. had worked on Wild Wild West, uh, which is another really crazy show. see in this episode um, the thief from uh, outer space yeah i think that malachi throne and, and ted cassidy are both fantastic in it this is probably my favorite episode of the second season mm-hmm. and it, it's just a great story there uh, there's a moment at the end where you know, the thief character of the Malachi throne realizes that Will Robinson has betrayed him. And it's the most heartbreaking, uh, I, I, to me, it's the most heartbreaking moment in the whole show, the whole series, that, that, that because uh, Throne, uh, he's a, a fantastic guy. I got to meet him a couple of times out here too. And he, he's a really great guy, really funny. And he, you know, Irwin Allen used him a lot. He's in a lot of time tunnel episodes and uh he he he's in just, star trek too yeah yeah he's a he's in star trek he he's was i think he came out of like yiddish theater or something and he could just make a you know meal out of anything and the smallest part he could make interesting and then i think alan figured out that he could you know he was great as these kind of uh busier, you know exotic kind of like arabian nights kind of characters and he, he wound up playing a lot of them uh, for or erwin allen but I, I this is just such a perfect kid story you know having 
these kids get involved with this grand exotic kind of Arabian Nights thief and them having to, you know, slave away for him and the, the whole interplay between them and, you know, Ted Cassidy, who's a, playing an actual slave and his, his kind Ted of Cassidy's resentment. Great. Yeah, he is incredible. You know, all these guys, I think, are just hugely underrated actors because, you know, Ted Cassidy was just really known for playing Lurch on the Adams Family, but he was a really expressive actor, a, a guy who could really make a character believable. So that's one of my favorite stories. And I, Dresden, I think it was going to be like an Arabian Nights style score. Uh, yeah, the, you picked out three cues here, and all three of them have that Arabian, Arabian yeah. Nights style tune. There's the Space Thief. And right away, you hear the cymbals, you know, clicking yeah. in that, and you just get that it paints a picture, you know, <laughs> just so vividly. Yeah, and it is really, yeah, it just, it just creates this great feeling of adventure. And I also love, I forget which is the cue. Thieves' Cave, is that the Yeah, place? yeah, they're taking the, that, it's a, this thing that flies them from. Oh, the sedan the chair. Planet. The sedan chair, right. Yeah. exciting uh it's it's really pulsating but it's it still creates a whole kind of arabian nights feeling so i think I, that uh, yeah. you know to me that's the best episode in terms of what they were trying to do in the, that second season to like make it very charming almost like a fairy tale and have these characters that were you know really larger than life and how will and dr smith were going to react to those characters uh, that that yeah. to me is the most successful uh, integration of all of that it is really perfect second season episode <laughs> The Arabian work song, I really liked it. You know, for some reason that reminded me, I could see belly dancers. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's it, very kind of Scheherazade. And, um, exactly, exactly. Uh, it's it's terrific. Well, another episode that he scored was The West of Bars. Dr. Smith versus Zeno, the Jonathan Harris played his uh, enemy within alter ego, I suppose, <laughs> which was kind of a one-off and almost, um, I don't know, it was evocative of the episode in Star Trek, Spectre of the Gun. Yeah, I think uh, th that's another one people really remember. I, I, I think Jonathan Harris is, is fantastic in that episode. And I think that he might have said that that was his favorite episode. 
I think I picked the cue for like a Judy baby. Right. There's a cue where he is just like, you know, out and out sexually harassing Judy uh, and just playing against type. Yeah, just to have Jonathan Harris doing that and playing this mean, emotionless, really very kind of uh, dark, intimidating thug, uh, you know, who who speaks in this slow, you know, menacing tone. And I just love that scene. So I I think that, uh, you know, for the composer, this was a, you know, you had to get the Western element into it, which was obvious, but to score this like Zeno character, I think was a big challenge uh, because uh, you were really playing against music in a way. Harris's voice is the way he uses his voice in that episode is kind of its own music score. Uh, so you, the, the composer had to find a way to write around that, you know, add to the menace of uh, the Zeno character. And I think he did a brilliant job of that. Well, I thought that cue, I, I particularly appreciated you mentioning that one because um, I'm not as familiar with all the second season music as the first season music, but that one, it seemed almost uh, avant-garde and it yeah. showed kind of the range of Drazenen. I mean, because it's so different from the other music that he's scoring. So it I really think was. That they, I think that they hired him because he had done so many bizarre episodes of Wild Wild West. And, you know, Wild Wild West was a show where they would have, like, people get, like, lost inside a painting. And and, uh, they did a lot of, you know, really surreal ideas Mm -hmm. in that show. There's an episode where they, it's about, you know, people drinking this formula, which would make them speed up and move, you know, at super fast speed, which is like a Star Trek episode. There's a Star Trek episode called Wink of an Eye. Yeah. And the, the Wild Wild West episode is actually much better because they take a lot more about physics into account. Like if the characters, you know, got into a fight, they would start getting exhausted and actually start generating friction. They would start like overheating. And that's how uh, West kills the villain at the end that he throws alcohol on him and when the guy starts fighting with them he bursts into flame because the air friction of the air on him so much so that that stuff they never thought of in the star trek episode but yeah drazen i think had uh you know he knew how to tackle these really bizarre ideas and i I think he did the uh the evil clown episode of voice of the bottom of the sea which is Ooh, the, my, scary. the scary, yeah, that that terrified me as a kid, and, and he came up with the perfect approach to that, too. Well, another episode he scored you wanted to talk about was Forbidden World. It was charming in a way because it had Wally Cox in it and this big giant bird. <laughs> that is yeah, this- it's a real. That's an episode. I don't. I don't. I have not watched it very much. I don't have very many memories of it as a kid, except from being afraid of this, you know, bird's foot that they would always show. But I basically chose that because of that the kind of walk off music at the end. <laughs> This 
whole ending thing with a slide whistle yes was always the you know yeah when they were all laughing at dr smith at the end of the show so that's something that showed up in a number of other episodes it's the all's well that ends well yeah uh, motif yeah Which really became the signature, you know, comedy ending music exactly. for Lost yes. in Space. And you could, the first cue I picked, he, you to can the see cave. Lay, to the cave, he lays down that theme. And then that's the theme for the Wally Cox character. Great. Drazen and not a guy I was familiar with. I love the insight and the fact that he worked on Wild Wild West and uh, his range is just remarkable. Wow. It's great to be speaking again with author and Lost in Space soundtrack producer Jeff Bond. His knowledge about the music and art of classic sci-fi TV and films is truly impressive. He's got more to share about Irwin Allen, Lost in Space, and much more. So sit tight for the second half of our conversation with Jeff Bond. You know, part of this soundtrack collection, Disc 8, it has re-recorded library cues from Season 1, most of them John Williams scores that are from The Reluctant Stowaway and some of the other early episodes. In the liner notes, you made this statement. You said it was fortuitous that they re-recorded them for season two because the original recordings weren't available. Refresh my memory on that. It was that they didn't have the recordings that they had done for the first episode. Well, I'm, we I'm had the music that was put out on like the GNP Crescendo original Irwin Allen set. What I think mm-hmm. was all, almost all of that John Williams stuff was the library recordings. Okay. And we, uh, for this set, we actually did find versions of those original cues and you can hear them on the set. The sound quality is not stellar, but that you can hear some stuff that was not included in those GNP sets. And, and those, uh, actually also include some, um, a few electronic effects and things that they didn't re-record, you know, when they did the, those uh, library versions. Sure. So the sound is a little bit different. So I, I think what I meant was uh, it was fortuitous for the record release. I got you. Um, okay. Most often for all of these shows, there were union rules that they were not allowed to reuse the same recordings from a previous season, but they often broke, those rules and one of the reasons that they would re-record cues was often to just fulfill the requirement the requirement was really was that you had to pay musicians to record the new music that didn't mean you had to use that music um you just had to have paid the musician to record it. So oftentimes they would do a fairly slapdash re-recording to just say that they did it. And then they would go ahead and use the original recording because that was the best performance. And they knew they weren't going to get a better one than that. I think in some, you know, some of the cases they did use some of the, if they got a good performance, 
But it was not like Star Trek. You know, Star Trek really made an art out of doing library music because they would record versions of different cues that were really different, that would use different tempos and... and Orchestrations. Yeah, yeah. So they were actually different pieces of music. So they'd come up with all kinds of variations for every situation. They recorded tons and tons of library music for that show. And and, uh, really, Lost in Space, the library music is just the, the Fred Steiner stuff in season one, which is maybe 10 or 15 minutes of music. And then for season two, the only library music apart from the John Williams stuff is the Leith Stevens music, uh, which is all new music and which was never used. Mm-hmm. You know, Alan, again, he was into recycling and he would much rather use the original stuff that they liked and they knew what it was than to try and come up with new stuff, especially for library mm-hmm. material. And also the, just the John Williams scores were tracked so much and that they just established in the first year that the default music was always going to be those John Williams. Uh, exactly. First it's handful a, it, of episodes. It's part of the DNA of Lost in Space. Well, I appreciate that explanation because I was kind of wondering why they, they did that. But hey, musicians got to eat too, right? Yep. Jeff, this is great. I really appreciate you going over season two music with us. Today. Great. So I just want to mention another plug for you is that Land of the Giant soundtrack that came out last year. I got that and it is awesome. And I know the big selling point was the John Williams music. There were two themes, as you mentioned before, a season one theme, which I really love. Another case of where somebody else was originally brought in to do a score for the pilot episode and for the theme and got supplanted by John Williams. So yeah, that I think that might have been the last gasp for Alexander Courage. I, I kind of feel like maybe Lionel Newman and Erwin Allen were on to him and felt like the music for the pilot that he originally wrote was just not exciting enough. So they went back and got Williams. You know, William's Land of the Giants pilot score is really stupendous. It it's, is. Um... It sort of paves the way for some of his disaster movie music and, and even for some stuff in Close Encounters. And he really created like a very harrowing feeling for the show and that just made the giants terrifying it, it, mm-hmm. it had a huge brass section and you know these incredible horn performances and, and he would go from too yeah yeah the, you know, you can feel it, those like bongos in the opening you know he really worked to just create a lot of anticipation and excitement about the concept and that you know we found uh, there's quite a i think there's enough 10 minutes more music uh, from the pilot then was on the the GNP Crescendo release and, and that, that stuff is all in great sound. I think, you know, Land of the Giants on the whole, the music, just the condition of the recordings is not in as good a shape as what we got on Lost in Space or, or Star Trek. 
Well, you made a mention, I believe, uh, that uh, there was also a little bit of influence from Jerry Goldsmith's score for Planet of the Apes. Yeah, they just have been released. One of the unique effects in the Planet of the Apes was a uh, electric harp. Uh, you hear right at the beginning of the score, uh, and it, it's uh, they use a tape delay device called an echoplex to create this kind of reverb echo sound after it. And it, it was something that, for whatever reason, for Land of the Giants, uh, Planet of the Apes became uh, a kind of an outsized influence. Um, you hear some of that in the John Williams score, and it's in. You can hear the electric harp and echoplex in a few other Land of the Giants scores. I pulled a few uh, Richard LaSalle cues and I wanted to talk about him because he became Alan's kind of house composer after Land of the Giants. He did all of Alan's TV projects, his TV movies like City Beneath the Sea and Return of Captain Nemo. Oh, really? And LaSalle had done some like first season stuff for for lost in space but not really much on the the other shows but he got a lot of work on land of the giants and he richard lasalle was kind of known for i'd say politely paying homage to other composers and other pieces of music if you watch the episode a small war where the being attacked by the toys the opening theme to that episode is right out of the James Bond score, uh, Modern Majesty's Secret Service. Oh, wow. There's an episode, uh, I think it's a place called Earth, where they take like the lost in space uh, space pod, somehow find that and go back to what they think is Earth. And a bunch of that score, LaSalle takes right out of Planet of the Apes. There's all sorts of uh, references to that score. So LaSalle, uh, and I think LaSalle was good. Like his music, you know, he, he wrote, I think, about as much music for Land of the Giants as uh, as Leith Stevens did, if not more. And he, he really kind of took over in the, the second season. So uh, I think that, like, 
for Irwin, if he couldn't get John Williams, he would just use Richard LaSalle because he knew that LaSalle could kind of reproduce all of that same kind of feeling and kind of do whatever he wanted. That's very interesting. Well, you said the recordings for Land of the Giants weren't in as good a shape as some of the Yeah, I think it, were... well, it's a difference between, you know, sounding pretty good and the, the stuff for Lost in Space and, and the Star Trek stuff that we found, you know, is all stellar. Not all, you know, not the, the Lost, for Lost in Space, I think the original John Williams material that we found, that is not in as good a shape. But everything else is, you know, as probably as good as it could possibly be. Mm-hmm. Um but, you know, I think the Land of the Giant stuff is listenable. I would not call it audiophile, but it's going to reproduce what you, at least what you got watching those shows. No, it's great to have all that music. But is that the reason why the season two John Williams theme has the sound effects? never able to find the elements for that the funny thing is we found you know the all the bumpers that that williams recorded which i think are fascinating yeah uh, but for whatever reason uh yeah there is no clean version of the second season thing which is too bad because I, I love that that's to me is you know far superior to the first season theme and it's one of the most exciting tv themes that williams ever did so it's too bad to listen to a cat meowing <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I love it. I love it. All that music. That's great. And I just got the Star Trek, the original series collection. I think that's 15 CDs. And wow, it's going to take me a long... You're now getting that? I know. I was holding out on that one. That is an incredible set. And uh, I mean, just for my taste, that doesn't have a bad moment. Like the third season music is I don't like quite as much as the first two seasons, but you know the total tonnage of music you get on that set is just it's incredible, un- unbelievable. Yeah, it's like seventeen or eighteen hours of music or something. Uh, and it's all in great sound, and we you know there, we found all sorts of material that had never been used on the on the show. Um, Some of the sound effects elements were actually music too. I yeah, think. exactly, exactly. A lot of those were created musically. So beautiful even- job. Yeah, that's probably, in terms of record projects, that's probably my favorite that I've ever done. Well, I've had my eye on that one for a while, but again, it's another pricey set. But uh, La La Land just happened to be running a sale on it the other day, and I said, Happy Father's Day early. (laughs) Yeah, that's where you will not not be disappointed by that. That's the, I still listen to that almost every week, and that was done years ago, so. That's awesome. (laughs) 
Well, Jeff, before we let you run, we know you're always busy. Do you have any new projects on the horizon that you want to share with the listeners? Yeah, this is going to be a very good year if you like Irwin Allen music. Uh, there's definitely more in the pipeline. I, I think you will see new releases of his biggest disaster movie scores, up to as many as three of those. Wow. In and two big... of those are John Williams, right? Yes. Uh, Poseidon Adventure and Towering Inferno. Yeah, two John Williams and one Jerry Goldsmith. Wow. And those are going to, I think, sound better than they've ever sounded before. And I will be doing, I guess I won't say which show it is, but I'll be doing another Erwin Allen set of music from one of his TV shows. And that'll be another four CD set. And I'm really, really excited about that one. That's another dream project that I've always wanted. Uh, and I guess you can narrow it, narrow it down. I, you know what There's it is. I've already go. told you. Uh, it, it'll right. be, uh, and we can definitely do a whole show about it. Um, but it, we're working to get it out uh, sometime this summer. It's I, I don't know how they're going to manage it. It may wind up being something that comes out in November. But uh, I think you will see it this year. Awesome. Oh, gosh. Got a lot to look forward to. You don't disappoint, sir. I apologize for keeping you on quite so long, but this has been just a real treat. I can't wait for the Fantasy Worlds of Irwin Allen book. That is awesome. I've already pre-ordered my copies because <laughs> I've got people to to uh, pay off for being so nice, and this is going to make a great present for people. To, great. And, of course, appreciate so much you talking about Season 2 Lost in Space music. would probably be another year from now before we start talking about Season 3 episodes, but that's going to be something to look forward to. So I hope I can arm twist you into coming back on the show down the line. Sure. That's great. I will add one more thing. I keep up with you on Facebook, and you're a big model builder. I'm I'm That's very right. impressed. How's that Star Trek Klingon Katinga? Uh, I just got the uh, circuit board for that. I'm hoping I might actually finish that this weekend. That was a murderous project. I'm doing that, and I'm doing a big 2001 space pod. Mm. And I, I've done more wiring for both. Of, I After this, like, I never want to put lights in a model again because uh, <laughs> I had about five miles of wiring in this Klingon ship. And I think it wasn't working because I had five miles of wiring in it. So, it but, looks uh, like a beautiful model, though. I'm, I've actually, I, I don't build models anymore. I, I just do podcasts, but I've actually got somebody building one for me. And well, I'm it's building taken this, a while. I'm building this for uh, someone, and that's why it's kind of frustrating because I was hoping to have been done with it by now. But I think, uh, God willing, I will have it finished uh, in the next week or so. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, keep posting pictures. I enjoy that stuff. So, All right. Okay, Jeff, we will link to all your appropriate links in our show notes. And at this point, I'll just say thank you so much for coming on the show, and we will talk to you soon. Great. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. I'm really delighted we had a chance to speak again with author and producer Jeff Bond. Check out the soundtracks he's helped produce and his books, especially this new one on the fantasy worlds of Irwin Allen. In the meantime, we will be back next time with another episode of Alpha Control, where Kurt and I will continue reviewing our beloved original Lost in Space. Until then, take care, and we'll see you soon.
Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Same time, same channel.